0: Welcome back to Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan Young, joined, as always, by Max Brown. And, man, do we have a lot to cover in this podcast.
1: A lot to cover. Oh, yeah.
0: A lot to cover. I mean, we had a lot to cover before this day started. We're taping this Monday evening. And, of course, the news broke earlier Monday that Lynn Swan is out as USC Athletic Director. Uh, University President Carol Folt sent an email to the Trojan community. I'm not sure the full extent of who was on that uh, receiving list, but I, I know uh, all the families of the, of the players and I'm sure all the boosters, etc., got that email. And then everyone just started reacting. Uh, let's just get into it and start there, and then we'll, we'll get to the game. We'll get to Keaton Slovis. We'll get to USC's big win over Stanford. But, Max, what was your just initial reaction when you heard that Lynn Swan was out?
1: My initial reaction was twofold. One, it was, man, like, SC can't get out of the headlines, like, for off-the-field stuff. Like, it just seems like it's every uh, every few months there's something kind of thing, and it's been that way since, shoot, I was kind of a freshman. And, uh, well, that might be an exaggeration a little bit. Like, by and large, I mean, a lot of just off-the-field just stuff the past um, in recent memory for, for SC as a school, as a football program, as an athletic department. So that was my first reaction. Um, and then my second reaction was kind of a chuckle and not to chuckle at someone's career, but just the idea that the second something the second something good happens for SC and moods are positive and the vibe is great, and it's as good of a feeling for a USC fan right now. There be there. There comes some some negative news, and I guess some people might flop flop that and say, "Oh, well, it's positive news. He's out of there. All, all that all that stuff." But the reality is, anytime someone's getting fired, it's for a negative circumstance or a negative reason. So I think uh, that was kind of my my impression uh, when I initially heard it. Yeah, I I definitely think that
0: most USC fans probably feel this is positive news. But your point is is valid. There, there's a reason why. They're parting ways now, and and those reasons aren't good. Now, you know, officially in Carol Fold's email announcement, she said that Lynn Swan resigned. But then she talked to the LA Times later Monday and made it pretty clear that this was her decision. Uh, Her quote was, he felt this was the professional thing to do, to resign and allow me to build my team. That's really the gist of it. She also uh, claims that the admissions scandal that, Embroiled USC was not part of this decision, nor was the five and seven finished in football last year, uh, plays extension, etc. cetera, et cetera. But th- those were all things that had many fans assuming, presuming, expecting that Fult would make a change when she took over this summer. And she didn't wait very long. So I, I don't know that I'm stunned. I am stunned by the timing though. I don't, I don't know why two weeks into the season, this is the time for things to happen, but you never know what's going on behind the scenes, how these things play out. There's always T's across, eyes I's to dot. There's a process to it. So my guess is that Lin Swan has known this for some time. This was coming. And I can guess that he definitely knew Saturday because I, I was observing him before the game. and It was interesting as the team's coming out for early pregame warmups, he's on the field by himself, not talking to anybody, but just looking around, taking it all in. He seemed very wistful. And in the context of the news that would follow two days later, I, I replayed that scene in my head, and it definitely looked like somebody who knew that this was probably the last time that they're doing this.
1: Yeah, and it's so. an interesting dynamic just because Lynn's going to be a legend at SC no matter what happens, and he'll be around, and he'll still continue to come to events. So I think there is probably something to be said about this, the, the – the letting them fall a little bit is was probably calculated. The fact that it's on a Monday, kind of a, a, a slow day when it comes to the athletic department, like you're not going to do it like right before a game so that everyone's thinking about it on a, on a game day kind of thing. But uh, interesting dynamic. I can remember when, when Lynn was hired and um, obviously well-versed dude, well-respected dude. Um, I've had nothing but uh, good interactions with him. But obviously, I mean, he, he came in with a lot of uh, – just a lot a lot of status, I mean, as a player, as what he's done as a man off the field. And so, uh, unfortunate it had to kind of end this way, but I am intrigued just kind of, where, where, what direction do they go now? Do they go another kind of big name uh, person with SC ties, or do they say, you know, we've had some, we, we've had some uh, a rough go for a little while as an athletic department as a whole, do we go maybe an outsider? And um, that'll be interesting to follow. I think
0: that they would get a revolt if they went back to the USC former player, no administrative experience well. USC hasn't had an athletic director with prior college sports administrative experience since Mike McGee from 1984 to 93. After that, you had Mike Garrett, you had Pat Hayden, then you had Lynn Swan. And I think the perception nationally has been one of confusion because this is not a ceremonial role. This is not like being the queen of England. Uh, there's a lot of day-to-day responsibility for an athletic director who really sets the tone for the entire direction of, uh, of a university's athletics program.
1: Uh, and uh, a, a lot of those ceremonial roles, like, SC's always going to need money, but I think having, I mean, when you ba- go back to, like, a Pat Hayden or Mike Garrett, like, the Galen Center, like, that was a big push. Like, you needed it in a basketball arena. That got done. Coliseum renovations in terms of boosters donating mudding, that got done. And the new John McKay Center, when I was a recruit, that got funded, that got approved. So I think as the athletic department, this is probably the right time to maybe go with the uh, strategic business sense rather than the big name to maybe try to raise some funds. I think that's an interesting dynamic as well. Yeah, it's a good point. Fundraising is a, is a
0: major aspect of that job because ultimately every – university is constantly looking to the next project, the next upgrade that gives them an advantage. And the athletic director is uh, at the forefront of those movements and, and getting people to invest and make them happen. So that's important. And you presume that that's the reason why they've gone that route with those uh, previous decisions. But just from the schools I've covered and, and getting them to know the athletic directors and everything they do and just everything that crosses their desk and, and falls on them. It, it always seemed an odd fit to me, and I think that's the way the fan base has felt. If you look at our message board, the reaction is universally uh, positive and happy that USC might finally go and get an experienced person in that position. And I, I think that Carol Folt being new to USC and coming in fresh and wanting to put her stamp on things – I don't see any reason why she would be inclined to, to go back to the USC well. I think she's coming in with a, a very fresh look at this and is going to do a national search. And I know people don't always believe when they hear national search, but I think she's truly going to do a national search. She's named a committee to kind of lead that charge, and and we'll see where it goes. Obviously, you have to expect that Bubba Cunningham, the AD at UNC, where uh, Carol Fult was previously, is going to be someone she talks to, if she hasn't already and uh, you know we'll break down some other names on the on the site later this week, but it's gonna be very interesting to see how it plays out. But I think this is this is a good thing for USC ultimately,
1: without a doubt. Yeah, I know. Uh, really, the only only thing I can relate to in this regard is like during my time at Pitt, we got we had got a new uh, athletic director and it was kind of up and coming name from it's like Eastern Michigan at the time. And so if you're gonna go like the strategic route, the savvy route, you you try to nab like an up and coming name, a person that can. Lead your program and be there for a while, and, and, and that kind of person, maybe that's the smart, uh, the smart direction to go to go hire someone from the outside rather than a, uh, a a big, a big USC former player type name. This is this is a premier
0: job. I mean, this is this is USC. This is one of the the biggest brand names in college sports, and I think you're going to have a lot of experienced athletic directors reaching out to Carol Folt and her team and saying, hey, I'd like to be considered for this. This is going to be a step up for a lot of people. Um, so I think they're going to have their pick. I, th- I think they can get someone really qualified in here. You know, just, just to close the book on Lynn on Swan, what he's going to be remembered for is going to be, A, giving Clay Helton the contract extension after the 18 season uh, through 2023, and then, Kind of forcing himself with that extension to to retain clay last year after the five and seven, and and we 'll see how that plays out I mean obviously they 're off to a two and zero start bram Harrell's offense is looking great, so it's uh, there 's been no verdict rendered on that decision yet, but that's that will always be attached to to, to lynn 's uh, legacy in this position and then then you have just the off the field noise that, that you mentioned and, and it's, it's there 's been a lot of it at USC in recent years. You had Tony bland with the basketball program. Uh, getting called up in the FBI's investigation into corruption in college basketball and getting fired and ultimately uh, sentenced to probation and community service for taking bribes to steer players to a certain you know agency after college. Then you had the admissions scandal, which uh, Lynn Swan maintained he had no knowledge of what Donna Heinel was doing, um, and I, I, don't, I don't doubt that. I don't think he did, but that was kind of the problem, is that he didn't know what was happening with one of his top uh, lieutenants. So, add all that together, and you you just kind of felt this was inevitable. So here we are now. It, it doesn't affect the players, the USC football team. You you were a player here when Lynn Swan was AD. Did you have much interaction at all with him? Was he really kind of a a, a part of your of your experience? Yeah, really. Right
1: on the only. Uh serious interaction I had with him was uh, when I was on on the way out and transferring to Pitt and I just had to discuss things with him about uh, the inevitable uh, reality that I'd come back and finish my master's program so just like schooling financial aid stuff there was a meeting with uh, me him and help and that was like the only like true like serious meeting I had with him. but I think all the players it's a it's a handshake while you're getting on the plane it's a uh, hey how's it going like off the field kind of thing and or like a, hey what's up uh mr swan at the basketball game that kind of stuff it's really i mean it doesn't really affect us i think at the the, the biggest w- way it affects us is those guys are going to get asked about it this week and it's just another like not that it's a distraction because i don't really think anyone's totally getting worked up on it but it's another thing they have to answer it's another thing It's another reason SC is like in the media for maybe not the best of reasons. Um, Obviously, there was much worse reasons as of late, but just another iron in the fire, I guess you could say. But by and large, um, I know that I only am speaking for myself on that. Uh, I obviously had Lynn as my AD when he was relatively new. I wouldn't be surprised if he had a more ingrained relationship with guys that he'd been there with the whole time because obviously he's been there for a few years. So that That's just my side of the story, but by and large, I think most guys are uh, head down, <laughs> focusing on ball, and don't really have time to to worry about admissions or uh, uh, administrative deals.
0: Yeah, the other aspect of this, obviously, is that uh, Lynn was Clay Helton's biggest supporter, and I think we all know that Clay has to prove it this season, or he he might be at risk for being ousted regardless, but without Lynn Swan there, it, it makes the likelihood of a new AD wanting to hire their own coach uh, a more present uh, thing hanging over this whole season. Now, if, if Clay Helton goes out there and leads this team to a great fall and they're off to a 2-0 start, it looked great last week, then that removes that variable and, and, and takes it off the table. But I, I think that he maybe has a little bit less leeway or leash now without Lin Swan on board.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think that's in every sport, every uh, ever at every level, anytime they bring in a new boss, that new boss usually likes to bring in their own their own new head coach if if this current scenario, the current lay of the land's not ideal. So I think that's a decision way down the road, obviously. Um, and I mean obviously with the, the way the team's playing right now hopefully it doesn't get to that point but uh I think it's definitely a factor at play and one that fast forward a couple of months could be uh could be a conversation topic for sure.
0: My last point on this and then we're going to get to the game and Keaton Slovis um a lot of ADs are very uh accessible and and present and as the face of the athletic department um you know have relationships ships with the media and and, and speak and uh, have their message out there. Lynn Swan was not that. We almost never talked to him. We talked to him at the unveiling of the Coliseum renovations a few weeks ago, and that was the first time he'd done anything formal with the media in, in forever. I mean, since I've been here. In, in, my, in my 13 months here, that was the only time that we talked to him, and that was for like three minutes. When I covered the the Gators, uh, Jeremy Foley and then Scott Strickland after him were, were always around, always talking with reporters, whether it was just you know, friendly conversation or formal interviews, they were accessible and the fans got to hear directly from them about what was going on with the program. And so my hope is that whoever they hire is, is more inclined to, to, be, to be out there and, and to not only let us media, but, but let the, the fans and supporters of USC athletics uh, have a direct line and, and know where he stands on things. So let's turn the page. Let's let's go to the game. USC beats Stanford 45-20 on Saturday, jumps back into the national rankings at number 24. And the story of not only this game, but one of the stories in college football over the weekend was true freshman quarterback Keaton Slovis. Breakout, star-turning performance, 28 of 33 passing, 377 yards, three touchdowns, no picks and really just galvanized this team after they fell behind fourteen uh, by 14 points early on. Max, what was your impression of Keaton Slovis, the true freshman?
1: Flat out impressed. Um, kid went out there and balled out. Uh, I mean, I was just impressed with the fact that just zero hesitation. He was decisive in everything he did. I mean, there was just no sense of true fe- true freshman jitters or – they were holding back the playbook at all i thought it was awesome we talked at halftime about this ryan but i thought it was awesome how graham walked out there in empty formation and and, and, it, and you know he purposely did that sending a message saying yeah. we got a true freshman quarterback but we're not slowing up for anything i just i was super impressed super impressed with the play calling super impressed with how they approached that um and it was really cool kind of after the fact listening to Graham, and it was kind of like, and he was like, I told you guys, like, everyone was giving me crap, and everyone was saying, like, <laughs> why am I doing, like, why are you saying these, like, you were around, or why are you saying he's the best ever, like, he's, you've been around the best, like, that kind of thing, and he's just kind of like, well, I told you, the kid had a high ceiling, the kid can ball out, and so it was cool seeing, it's just, it's, it's awesome when when it transfers over for guys, because there's a guy, I've played with many guys that were great on the practice field. A lot of success. And for whatever reason, maybe it doesn't shine over to games as much. And uh, for him to do that so quickly um, and then really just kind of quiet some of the, the, the negative buzz around the team or uh, maybe the, just the downers after JT got hurt, I, th- I thought it was uh, a super special week. And I'm sure that kid's uh, living on cloud nine right now. I can't imagine, man. It, it,
0: listen, I, I've been in, as high on Keaton Slobus as, as anybody not named Graham Harrell because I've told this story before, so this is probably repetitive to the listeners, but just in case anyone hasn't heard it, back in January when there was no buzz about this guy, I was talking to a state championship winning coach from Arizona who played against him, and he was telling me, no, like this, this guy's legit. Like He's not a three-star player. He's going to do things there if he gets the chance. Uh, he, he played on a high school team with almost no other D1 talent, and he was kind of the force that elevated them to respectability and never really got full recognition because he wasn't at a powerhouse. But this guy was convinced. He's he's like, no, this was one of the better players we saw all year. He's going to be good there. And so I I was kind of, I had that in the back of my mind going into spring. I'm like, you know, I'm going to be open-minded and trust what this guy is telling me. And then we just kept seeing it. So I was expecting good things, but I wasn't expecting 28 of 33 for 377 and three touchdowns. And it amuses me that coaches can never admit that anything surprised them. And so, I, you know, you mentioned Graham Harrell doing the I told you so routine, and he, he definitely earned the right to do that because he's, he has been telling us this for, for months and months and months, and people thought he was full of hyperbole and a bit over the top, and he clearly wasn't. So, so he had every right to, to do the I told you so routine. But I couldn't get anybody after the game to admit that, yes, this was even better than we expected. Clay Hilton, nope. Yeah. We had full confidence in it. Every player, no, I'm not shocked. We see it every day. And I'm just like, really? You expected 377 yards and three touchdowns? And then finally, finally, Keaton Slovis. I'm like, Keaton, I know you were confident going in, but could you have imagined 377 yards and three touchdowns? And, and he, go, he shook his head and said, probably not. So he, yeah. he was the only one that could
1: admit that maybe he exceeded expectations. So yeah, anyway. that was the question I asked him on the, the post-game radio show. I was just like, yo, bro, take a step back for me. Like you, you talk about nine months ago, you were in high school playing on a bad high school football team to then now like leading, leading SC uh, from from the dark dark side. Uh, as a true freshman like who would have thought and he, and he had a good chocolate and you can tell he's wired in a healthy way in just terms of like yeah I mean I put in the work I trusted in myself but then again he is genuine enough to realize this is pretty freaking crazy um, but obviously it's just one game I will say um, I will say this and feel free to get on me if you're listening to this uh, but I, when I rewatched the game that's not the Stanford defense that teams have known to come and come to just fear. Though they don't have the dudes up front, they're a solid football team. Check that; they are a good football team. They're going to win games, but I was not impressed with them defensively in terms of what we've become used to seeing year in and year out. In terms of the Harrison Phillips, the Solomon Thomases up front, like they did not have those. Uh, had guys at secondary um but I also think there's an element of Graham absolutely out-schemed um their Stanford's defensive coordinator you could tell their entire game plan on defense um was we're going to line up in man coverage we're going to line up in a lot of single man-on-man coverage and force this true freshman to beat us with his arm we're going to the, the 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 byproduct of going man coverage is you're able to bring an extra guy in the box. That extra guy in the box will help against the run. I can't blame them for having that mindset. Say we're not going to get absolutely torched by the run. Yes, they still got beat on it a little bit, but they're not. We're not going to get absolutely torched on the run. We're going to force this true freshman to beat us. And what happened? The the stud receivers of SC, which we've known about for years now. They absolutely torched the corners, and Keaton played point guard all night and absolutely lit him up. And so I was impressed, but I do need to say that one point because if we're calling a spade a spade, and you turn on that film, um, that's kind of where I net out with uh, with things from a, from a bird's eye from a bird's eye view. So, do you think that
0: that maybe Stanford didn't totally buy into all the comments this week that they were going to run the same offense with Keaton that they weren't expecting it to be? totally focused around him as it was i think it
1: was probably a mixture i think it was i mean they they know the deal they know graham harrell's a a byproduct of i mean of air raid like they know they're gonna have to throw a little bit but i think there was an element of okay you have to pick your poison are we gonna sit in too high all night and potentially get gashed by vines and steven the entire night with not having an extra man in the box or do we bring an extra man in the box go one high man coverage a lot of the time and take our chance with the true freshman quarterback. If you flash fo- If you rewind before Saturday uh, night, that, wouldn't have, that, that that strategy sounds pretty sound to me. I think I do I'm a little critical of Stanford later in the game for not adjusting when Keaton obviously proved that he could die, like, to, could spread the ball around, could obviously prove he could play at this, at this level. Um, but initially, I don't have a problem with their strategy, and I think, uh, I think that was their mindset for sure.
0: Well, here's my overall takeaway, is that this was this was the best thing that could have happened for this USC season. And that seems like an obvious comment, but it's on many levels. This should finally put to rest any of the um, uneasiness about the depth chart decisions, about Jack Sears entering the transfer portal, about whether Helton and Harold made the right decision, whether it was a fair competition, etc. I mean, this should validate everything. Uh, this is... They chose this guy as the second best quarterback, and he got his chance. And it's hard to argue that anyone else uh, behind him would have done better. So, so put that all the rest. Now, it also for the first time in a year, for the first time since USC lost to Stanford and Texas early last season, and things started going off the rails. There is palpable excitement. Like our, our board has been pretty negative and critical this last year, and and not willing to to buy into, you know, believing this new offense was gonna be the the cure all or that the changes that Hilton made were gonna make an impact. And after that game Saturday night, there was like positivity had returned, excitement had returned. This was The complete opposite of what we saw last year when USC would start strong and then fade and then couldn't recover when things went wrong. They were down 17 3 Saturday, and that's when they kicked it into high gear and took over the game. They scored the last 35 points after they were down 2010. This is the complete opposite of everything we saw last season. So if you didn't want to buy into any of the changes, the impact of Aaron Osmous in the offseason program, whatever Helton's doing, as far as discipline and focus. Maybe you want to buy in now because you saw it happen, and it was it was eye-opening, and you hope it's rep- replicable and, and it is the theme for this season. We don't know yet. But for at least this week, there's reason
1: to, to really believe in the potential for this team. Without a doubt. And, uh, yeah, by no means, is, do my Stanford comment, am I trying to, to to rain on the parade at all? Keaton's a, a super, uh, super talented dude. Um, I'm just – you know, trying to trying to call, call, uh, call it how I see it. But I think there's every reason uh, to be excited. I think uh, that, that's the name of the game for any football team on any level. The second you find your signal caller or your dude, that's the biggest piece of the pie that's now figured out. And I think um, it's I still feel for JT because I think if JT's out there versus Stanford, I think he lit, lights them up as well. But nevertheless, I mean, it's a true freshman. Keaton's out there. First start. He's only been on campus for so many months. Uh, as impressive as a, a of, of a quarterback performance as uh, as he can really recall. Uh, I think that's that's a that's a fair statement. I definitely think there's a lot of
0: people that are still, um, you know, keeping it in perspective, and it's one game, and uh, n- not ready to to go all the way in. That, that's fine. That's fair. But to me, it wasn't just. What he did, it's how he it's how he did it. It's how it looked, like the the throws he made. It was it wasn't just you know, picking apart the the easy underneath routes and the open guys. He was throwing lasers down the sideline, threading over the defensive back. He was whistling the ball down the seam, uh, somewhat in traffic. He dropped that beautiful thirty nine yard touchdown pass to Amon Ross St. Brown, which. Uh, both players said afterward was maybe a little too high but you know from a visceral standpoint it it looked beautiful it dropped like, dropped right into his hands in the end zone he just had, he had phenomenal touch and that was the one thing that we saw in the practice field was he had arm strength and he had a touch and like you said you don't always know if it's going to carry over but it carried over and it just looked good if i if i didn't see any of the stats and i only got to watch 8 minutes of that game I would still come away feeling the same way I do now about him, just because of the way he looked out there.
1: Yeah, it's a fair, it's a great point. I mean, you talk about the whole uh, the whole array of throws on a line, back shoulders, uh, quick out routes on time, all the drops you could ask for. Um, he he showed it all. I think uh, it's also a fair point. to – credit these receivers, credit these, that, that offensive line. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about offensive line being a big question mark. They were fantastic. Um, and they all, obviously, when the run games were all in, that helps as well. But, yeah, Keaton, Keaton was special. It'll be fun to see how he progresses in the coming weeks when Teams maybe mix up the looks defensively more than they did, uh, more than Stanford did. If teams decide to blitz more, if teams decide to drop more in coverage, it just kind of mix it up week in and week out. He's obviously has his first road test this upcoming week, so I think every single week we're going to learn more and more about him. But I mean, his first start we learned the most, and we learned that he can ball and he can play, and that. Um, SC's found a, found a legit answer at that position. And for a young kid that's a, that has a huge bright future, there's a, every reason to be fired up. Yeah, look, I mean, he, he's going to make mistakes. He's not
0: going to be flawless every week. And one of his more impressive throws Saturday was, I don't have the yardage, it was like 26, 29 yards, whatever, down the right seam to Tyler Vaughn's. And it, it went right past the defender's hands. And that was the one critique Graham Harrell had about Keaton Slovis in the spring. He told us he has so much confidence in his arm strength and his ability to fit the ball in tight windows that it causes him to take chances or or he thinks he can get away with being a a tick late on a throw and and still get it there. And uh, that was probably not a totally advisable pass because there was some risk to it, but it worked out. And so I think you're going to see moments like that where it doesn't work out, where he takes chances and and, and gets picked off. It's going to happen, but his playmaking ability to me is going to offset that uh, overall.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, there's probably an element uh, that Clay and Graham almost like the fact that he's taking chances a little bit because those are kind of where the big plays happen, and you almost you almost live with the downside at times. I mean, as long as he's throwing the ball on time that's the biggest thing and for a young guy that anticipation it's something that I noticed JT had last year and even when people were on JT at times I was like it's impressive for a young guy to have that sense of anticipation and just getting the ball out of his hands it's the same deal in college it's the same deal in NFL when you watch these rookie quarterbacks is are they throwing the ball in time or are they sitting back there and waiting for things to develop and there's none of that with Keaton um, and yeah an impressive guy a cool story and it sounds like I mean, teammates love him. Great kid, wired the right way. So, um, yeah, hope hoping, but no, nothing for hoping, but nothing for the best for uh, for this kid.
0: Let me let me ask you: What was either the most impressive throw you thought he had, or the aspect of his game that surprised you the most?
1: Yeah, I'll uh, I'll dumb it down a little bit. I, I think one of the most impressive throws is when he got in a rhythm there early, and it was kind of like. Uh, it was a quick out or a glance route, which is a little post route. And he was thrown on time, and he got in a rhythm. He got in a rhythm, and then there was a, a like a there was one play where he really got to like his fifth progression, and then checked the ball down to his running back. I think it was Vi out the out the backfield, but just that showed me that man, this kid's processing at a high level because. The, the, the first step is all right just get the ball out on time well literally like i was just talking about and then he's operating he's finding windows but the fact that he's saying all right i'm going to go through my first progression not there second progression not there and then work through the tree stay calm stay poised um trust his teaching trust his reps and the fact is he hasn't had that many reps so to be able to just know that instinctively i think was super impressive and it shows the maturity, it shows that he's a true pocket passer. Um, he's got a lot of confidence in himself, and uh, yeah, a, a bright spot for sure. Don't want to sound like a broken record, but that's uh, that's what it is.
0: I, I asked Harold that same question. I asked him, what was your favorite throw of his? And he goes, I don't know, he had a lot of good throws. He goes, to me, the the biggest thing was the decision making, like you just touched on. And he said, "On, on every, you work with these guys so much and talk to them, and you want to get to a point where they're thinking like you like like you think and they're seeing what you see. And he said on pretty much every play where I thought the ball should go is where he put it. And that's a pretty strong comment from the OC. Well, one more point I want to touch on with Keaton. And this, we kind of already knew this. We we, we kind of knew his personality. When we asked Graham Harrell last week what the big biggest difference was between him and JT, he said personality. And, you know, he was very very uh, emphatic to say it's not like one's better than the other, It's just that Keaton is, is more outgoing and more likely to want to fire the guys up and and be vocal in that way. And when they're down 17-3 early and Bayless Jones fumbles the kickoff and Stanford has, has a chance to – or 14-3 and then it became 17-3, has a chance to put the game uh, really more out of reach, Keaton – gathered up the offensive players on the sidelines said whatever happens out there we're going to go out and score and we're going to keep scoring and that's what they did and I you know in sports we we like to mythologize those moments and make them out to be more than they are uh, but it I thought it was cool for a freshman that, that he he was the one saying hey guys gather around we got this and then went out and backed it up
1: yeah, yeah I think uh to me it shows the kid's just aware he's aware that all the eyes are on him he's aware that he's aware that um Maybe that wasn't something that JT was bringing to the table that the offense maybe uh, could have used, and I think if it's who he is and that that's how he's wired, then by all means, go ahead. I think I think that's awesome. I think Graham's point's fair in that there's no right or wrong. I think every guy the the right there is every guy needs to be himself behind center, whatever that is. If you're a rah rah guy, if you're a, a, a quiet guy, however that is, but there is a place, obviously, especially in and teams that have a lot of noise surrounding the program and maybe need leadership for that leadership to come from a quarterback. And so super impressive for a, a young guy to do that. I think it shows that his teammates have, have that respect. He's earned that respect. And then obviously anytime you go out there and back it up with your play, you better believe everyone in that locker room's listening to him. So, um, yeah, it, it just seems like this kid's just – wired exactly like you want him to be super genuine aware of his teammate like aware of what's going on being himself and going out there and uh trusting his preparation and it's uh it's paying off which is great to see
0: so one of the more interesting questions posed to harrell after the game and i'm glad that was asked was did he at all consider actually naming keaton the starter
1: Ooh, that's a that's a good question (laughs) That's yeah, and, and he
0: he reiterated that the difference that he saw between J T. Daniels and Keaton Slovis in the preseason was was that Keaton did make some freshman mistakes now and then, and J T. was just a little more consistent. and And that that jives with what I saw out there. So I I don't think that I know people are going to want to create the next controversy now and say that. Harold Harold won Slovis all along and was forced to start JT, and I I don't think that was the case. I I think that he thought JT had a lot of upside as well and was a little bit safer, and that's why I do think we will see Keaton Slovis make some mistakes this fall. He he is a freshman. it's going to show up at, at points, but... We saw the potential. Now let's. let's I'll say I'll say one
1: one more point on that. I think the one yeah. thing I would add to that is, and I'm not saying this to, to to rain on any parades, but I think JT would have had a big night against Stanford as well. Yes. And so I totally agree. Yeah. So the idea that did Keaton play great? Yes. Is it impressive as a true freshman? Yes. But I think. You put JT against that Stanford defense as well, and I think he lights him up as well. And so that's a credit to that quarterback room in general. But the idea that it was like a, and not I'm not saying he said that uh, that this is what we're getting at, but the idea that maybe it's one's a, a positive and one's a negative. Like, no, yeah, I think both guys would have had a, a great night last Saturday. No, I, I'm
0: totally with you, and I, and I'm I'm glad you you raised it because that's how I felt too. I again I I was impressed with JT in the first half last week and, and Harold made the point to make this that same comment he goes if you look at, at JT's performance last week take the interception out, he was doing the same thing moving the ball up and down the field. Uh, I mean he had 200 plus yards of, of passing uh, in, in the first half alone. So I, I, I brought up the previous point just because I know that that's what the narrative that some people are going to create now because there has to always be a controversy or, or, or something behind every decision. And I, I kind of wanted to, to dispel that to a bit because I, I think this offense is really conducive to any great quarterback. And I think both of them would have had a lot of success there. Let's let's talk about JT now, though. Uh, Clay Helton uh, went out of his way to include JT in his comments. We talked to him Sunday night on his weekly conference call with media and said that he had JT room with, with Keaton in the, in the team hotel before the game and and really work with him on the routine during the week and everything that he learned from last year about how to get prepared and everything and, and 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 really credited JT with accepting this role he couldn't have imagined for himself this fall but but you know being there for his teammate and being involved at the same time you have to wonder what JT's thinking as he watches this guy who's replacing him due to injury go out and have the the kind of game that JT never had as a true freshman, the kind of game that we were waiting for him to have. And like you said, that he might have had in in the same setting on Saturday night. You have some unique perspective, uh, just on on kind of being joust around the depth chart and, and seeing guys perform well. Kind of take us from your history, your perspective. What do you think JT was feeling Saturday night?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, no, it's a great question. I think um, it's double-sided for sure. I think on one side, he's looking around at some of his best friends that are having the time of their lives, like, going through the the, the, the scenarios or living the, the scenarios that they thought of as recruits, like winning big games on national television, primetime in the Coliseum, having success, SC's role in those kind of things that he's definitely feeling super excited for all his buddies for sure. He's excited for Keaton. I mean – um i know back when i was battling with cody kessler and max wittick and darnold and stuff like the outside world portrays it as a i mean it is a heated battle and all that stuff and it's it's darnold versus brown and brown versus kessler and all that but the reality is like when you spend so much time with these other quarterbacks like those guys are buddies um you're just making it hard on yourself if you're not buddies or anything so those guys are close um the idea that they're roaming together like yeah that makes that makes total sense but I think yeah JT's excited for his buddies but I think on the other side it's those natural human being feelings of like one dang that I like if I was healthy I'd be doing the same thing those kind of feelings like um gosh dang it why'd this have have to happen to me that that kind of stuff and then I'm sure he's hearing the outside noise of like all right so I mean if if Keaton stays on this trajectory or even even just stays relatively close to this trajectory it's an interesting conversation down the line and we don't necessarily need to go there but there's got to be an element of JT kind of assessing kind of where he where his playing career is at and it's not like necessarily a negative thing I know for me throughout my career you're always assessing what happens under scenario A and what happens under scenario B because it's your life you only get one go at it you'd you'd be a fool for not thinking about all all the possibilities so I mean if I'm JT and we kind of have a similar time frame in this in a in a weird way where i mean it's week 3 that's kind of when i got uh that's when i got benched at at sc and you kind of you're sitting here right now and he has 2 months before he can really like before like he has two more months of regular season where like nothing's changing like he's got to go to class he's got to go to rehab like and i know his his whole process is much more drastic than mine kind of kind of was but if i'm him mentally and this is how i was back in 2016 i'm just buckling down for two months how good can he rehab what can he do to his body is he eating right like go have a great two months and i know he's having surgery and it's a different ball game and that kind of thing but i I, if i was him i would not even pay attention to any of those thoughts and not that he is but any of those thoughts about what what ifs down the line just Go have a productive two months for your for his mental health, for his injury, for all that stuff. Go be a great teammate. Go have fun with your with your uh, or enjoy the success of your teammates and and worry about those things down the line. I guess is the best way to put it. But obviously, I think he's excited for his friends. But it's a tough spot to be in if uh, if you're JT for sure.
0: It's yeah. It's it, it's human nature. I mean, how can you not? Uh, have that f- the full gamut of thoughts and, and and think about all those things. Obviously, you'd love to block it out, but that's just I I don't know that I could in his position. Just just to close out on this point, th- do you remember Sam's first start? How, how conflicted your mindset was going into it? Yeah, totally.
1: And uh, I mean, as time goes on, people kind of kind of forget this, but it was a it was it was it was very controversial. when I got benched. I mean, that was not uh, a clear cut decision by any means, and so. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I was I was definitely torn because you want to see your best friends do well, but there's elements of like, gosh dang it, that should be me out there kind of thing. So um, no, that, that was that was really hard. and I'm sure it, it was hard for JT as well. Um, and he'll get tested in the weeks coming too. as as this team hopefully has a lot of success. And I mean, he uh, he was like the leader of the offense, and now the offense is rolling on without him. Like all those things, just as you would recognize as human beings, like all those emotions are coming to him. And, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic and one that's tough when you're just kind of uh, sitting on the sidelines.
0: It's really interesting to see where this is in a year from now or next preseason. I, I'm still very high on JT and his potential. And I'm very high on Keaton and his potential, and it's an interesting timeline because you you wonder how ready JT is going to be for camp next year, and if that becomes a factor in whatever outcome happens uh, with the depth chart, and we just can't answer those questions right now. But I, I I definitely feel for him because this is it's a tough spot to be in. Let's let's move off the quarterbacks, even though we could talk about them for the rest of the podcast, of course, but. The big question I had going into this game, aside from what would Keaton do, was could the offensive line back up its strong play from the opener? Now playing against a a ranked Pac-12 opponent. And I haven't gone back through all the film yet on the O-line, so I'll I'll do that later this week and get a a firmer look at that. But just watching the game, I was impressed again. And and this unit is really becoming one of the storylines of the season. Clay Helton said in the preseason, and I don't think any of us believed him, uh, that he thought the offensive line was was the most improved unit on the team and, and was becoming a, a tone setter for the offense because the scrimmages that we got to see, we saw two August scrimmages just weren't that impressive in that regard. Maybe that's a credit to USC's defensive line or just the familiarity of them knowing what the other side's going to do and it's, it's hard to, to get a true gauge. You know, whatever it was – I would not have put money on the USC offensive line being
1: one of the consistent positives the first two weeks. And it really has been. What's been your impression of that group? It's been cool how every coach that you talk to that has a, has a a stake on the offensive line always brings up the word like cohesive and how cohesive the unit is and how together they are and, it's one of those awkward dynamics where, like, if they keep honing in on it, you almost kind of look back and scratch your head like, well, does that mean that the last year's offensive lines, like, weren't cohesive and, like, maybe they right. weren't, like, the, the tightest of group and, like, kind of what's going on there, like, those type of things. But uh, it's maybe funny to think about that. But it's cool that, like, that group's kind of locked in together. And Clay always touches on the fact that they like, kind of came in together, grew, grew up together, some played earlier than others. But now they're all kind of right around that same age and kind of growing and, and taking this team um by the horns, I guess you could say, and and being a stronghold on that on that offensive side and and on the team in in general, I think they're all doing great. I I, I really think so. I think um, you talk about the transfer, Drew Richmond. Like I know there were some questions about him preseason a little bit. He's playing well. I think across the board, um, communicating well. I mean, they're they're just stoning guys up front. And I think um, that's one thing. That was one of my first reactions coming out of the game was. Uh, relatively speaking Keaton had a clear picture all night um, and JT had yeah. a pretty similar week one um, and that's a testament to this offensive line I think it gets back to one of my earlier points so like it's gonna be interesting to see if teams start bringing more pressures and trying to confuse like making a uh, conservative effort to try to c- confuse Keaton that, that kind of thing how the offensive line handles uh, themselves but by and large Playing great. I think this offensive scheme helps him. I think the running backs help him. I think Keaton's ability to get the ball out on time helps him, and everything's pointing in the right direction for this group. Yeah, Clay's often made that the point about those
0: guys coming in together. You know, five of the, of the six in that group with Austin Jackson, Elijah Vera Tucker, Brett Nilan, uh Andrew Voorhees, and Jalen McKenzie were all in the same class. And then you bring in Drew Richmond as the, as the only addition. He comes. Tennessee as a grad transfer, uh, it is an interesting dynamic that they've kind of come up together. And, you know, I, I've covered college football long enough to avoid certain storylines, and every preseason somebody will write a story about how the offensive line is hanging out together off the field and they're so close and tight, and it's the same story every year at every school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, and we, we had a couple of those written this preseason, and I, I just – you can never really put any stock into it because you just don't know. Are there but, is there any guy on
1: the offensive line uh, that's like surprised you or like when you link, when you look back on maybe pre spring ball like where one guy was then to yeah. like now is there a name that sticks out on your end? Yeah, it's it's that right
0: side. So you know, Drew Richmond came in as a grad transfer and was a former you know top prospect in his class, but. Everyone I reached out to at Tennessee just said, you know, what should I expect from Drew Richmond? How do he do there? Just, they, they were not positive reports. It just, and there was a reason why he was transferring after being a starter for most of the last two, two and a half seasons. And he just, he just had really struggled there. So that was in the back of my mind. And, you know, part of me thought, well, maybe he comes in here rejuvenated, motivated in his last chance and it's different. But if that's what he's put on tape the last two years, then it's hard to expect much different. i, I watched him really closely um, when I went back through the tape, at least from the first game, and, and I was truly impressed. I was like, wow, he's, he really held his own out there. And then uh, Andrew Voorhees was maybe the one at right guard that we thought was, I, I don't want to say weak link, but I can't think of another word. I'm not trying to put him down. But it was maybe the one we had the most questions about. And yeah, the odd man out. Jay- yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so he and Jalen McKenzie have been rotating there at right guard, and kind of figured that McKenzie would be the guy. And, and honestly, I, I think he's played more uh, than Voorhees. It's, it's probably close, but in watching the film, I've actually been really impressed with Voorhees. And um, if anyone, I think McKenzie maybe has, has had a few more struggles and uh, can get a little handsy and coming close to to a hold on a few plays uh got beat for a sack on saturday night so, so Voorhees is, is really impressed me because he, he was a guy coming off last season that i didn't really project uh super high and he's been good
1: yeah no, the whole unit's been locked in i think uh it's awesome especially when you have a young quarterback the last thing you want to be worrying about is uh is an offensive line not getting it done and so the fact that those guys are locked in, and the fact that, I mean, you look into the future of this team and this program in general, and you have the offensive line and the quarterback able to kind of grow and, ha- and have a few years together, that's definitely a bright sign for the program at large.
0: Yeah, I- I'm not going to, I'm not saying this to needle um, Toa Lobendon last year, but I really do think the snapping issues, they were so prevalent, had the, just a negative effect on that whole unit. And it was it was just they were just back breaking moments and uh, Brett Neil Neelan, has been very solid there and I, I really like his personality I, I think he's a he's kind of a galvanizing force for that group up, up front I think he's been a solid addition and, and an upgrade at center so yeah, Austin Jackson was the the Pac twelve offensive lineman of the week left tackle so there, there's a lot to like there and we all kind of thought that Tim Drevno would get more out of that group just based on his track record of where he's been—Stanford and Michigan, and the 49ers—and just had, he he'd performed at all his stops and gotten a lot out of his units. So we thought that was going to be the case, but then just when you see a group struggle and you don't, you can't see the obvious uh, improvement in practice, it's it's hard to buy in. But I'm starting to buy in now. I'm right with you, no doubt. Well, let's let's uh, let's close out talking about defense a little bit, and it was a really interesting game for the USC defense because they they were not good in the first half, and we have our in-game thread going on the message board, the Trojan Talk message board during the game, and it, and it was uh, there was a lot of panic, and I'm I'm normally pretty level-headed and, and don't waver during the game, but but I I kind of bought into it. And I said, man, I, this is going to be hard to come back if they keep playing like that defensively. I I believed in the offense. I believed they get it going and score a lot of points, but I just I didn't see the defense turning it around like they did and to have a scoreless second half and and really clean a lot of stuff up was impressive because the knock on this coaching staff last year was lack of second half adjustments. Now, I I'm not a defensive Xs and Os guru, so it's hard for me to say what exactly they changed to make that difference. What did you see that you thought was difference from the first half to the second half of the defense?
1: Yeah, to me, I think it was uh, less of the defense and more of Stanford's offense, if we're being honest. I think uh, Stanford had a nice rhythm in that first quarter of being able to kind of get some chunk run plays, and then for whatever reason, they tried to like, and it was more under-center, downhill, running focus, and then for whatever reason, the second half, they got away from it. I don't know if that was because of, uh, they were getting getting down, and SC's offense started rolling, and it's that uh, human nature as an offensive play caller to not want to just run the run the rock when you're when the when the clock uh, keeps ticking and whatnot. But I think all year my sense with this USC defense is they're going to be very opportunistic. And what does that mean? I think it's going to be guys flying around. It's going to be guys o- always around the ball, always trying to make the big play. You see guys excited every time, like screaming around edges. Like I think it's a big reason why maybe they missed a lot of sacks that first week is everyone's trying to make the big play. And with that comes some big plays, but it also comes with maybe some uh, some mishaps at time, which I think you saw in the first half, some like those run fits, like they, they didn't really totally necessarily fit um, exactly like you would draw it up, and whether that's the linebackers or whether that's not a defensive end taking on a, du- a double team like he needs to, I think that's going to be the big thing with, the, with this SC defense. They're flying around. They're excited. They have all the playmakers in the world. Can they continue to... Grow in the discipline aspect, and then stay in that same uh, that same mindset of hey, sometimes you got you gotta take on that puller, and you gotta hit him in the backfield so then your buddy can make the play, rather than maybe everyone trying to make the 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 TFL or everyone trying to make the the home run tackle. Not that they're all necessarily doing that every single play. But you can get that sense where some of those plays they're getting gashed on. It's uh, it's it's someone maybe getting out of a gap or like a, a little mishap here or there. So that's what I'm focused on. I thought oh, all in all it was a, a pretty solid day by the defense. Um, but then again, Stanford left some some plays out there as well. So I think there's definitely things Clancy's uh, cleaning up with those guys today.
0: You know, coming into the season, we it was pretty unanimous or uh, consensus that the biggest question was going to be the young secondary through two games I, I may have more questions about the linebackers right now and I know that that EA is still
1: adjusting to a new role and yeah um, what's your take with EA um, he comes he's, he's coming up more and more on on uh on these message boards and Twitter, I got a couple of tweets about him as well. Just because big recruit, and you're right. Like the questions have now gone away from the secondary. It's like, all right, we got the trust there. We have the trust in the offensive line. Right now, can we? Now can where can we point the finger? And I feel like he's getting a little uh, not to, not to totally point him out, but he's getting a little more a uh, little more uh, traction right now. Yeah,
0: I think he's just had a couple of off games. I mean, I saw enough last year where I'm not going to waver on on my optimism for what he can do because he has the, the reflexive instincts that you want in that position. He, he's a true playmaker. I think it's going to show maybe, maybe adjusting to the weak side and practice is different from now doing it in games for the first time. John Houston is, is right there too, in terms of uh, guys drawing criticism. He, many thought he was undersized for that middle linebacker position and what I see from John Houston is a a reactive player. Yeah, I I, I think he's he's uh, he's not really you know ahead of what's happening, or he's he's not making impactful plays. He's kind of recovering and 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 late to spots, and and, and maybe that's too harsh. I, I I don't know. I'm I'm not breaking down every one of his snaps, but to me so far, that's been my biggest question: is that spot? Yeah, and I think it'll be.
1: It'll be interesting to follow in the coming weeks with some of these defenses that are really going to put pressure on those backers in terms of the RPO world, the zone read world, where they're putting every single time they put the, put the, uh, try to hand the ball, they're putting John Houston in a bind of do you go with the quarterback, do you go with the running back? They're putting EA in a bind. I think that'll be fascinating to follow. I think as Jordan Iasefa gets healthy, like where does he fall in this mix? Does he, I mean, obviously a captain, he can add some depth in that position. Um, yeah. And then what I noticed uh, as a, uh, last week, and I know I mean, it's something I would do if I was Clancy as well, but they're putting EA in positions to just, just go get the ball, like on the edge, rushing, just minimal thinking, just go get the ball, fill a gap, that kind of thing. Because one thing when you do hear Clancy talk is he always brings up read and react. Oh, he's working on reading and reacting. Oh, we're moving him back a little bit to read and react. And it keeps coming up because yeah. maybe that's an element where Okay, he's a world class athlete, great all the the, the the linebacker elements you would want, but he's back there maybe thinking a little bit and maybe just just in in his head maybe a little bit too much. And I don't want to put thoughts, I don't want to put stuff out there because I don't know the exact uh, ins and outs. But there's definitely a piece of that where if I'm Clancy, like this guy's way too good of a football player. I gotta find some scenarios just for him to go out and just run around and tackle people, and that'll be an interesting dynamic to follow as. As Jordan gets healthy, if, if EA isn't able to maybe uh, adjust like they would want to, you got to find a way to keep him on the field. So I think it's a great point. It'll be fun to, to follow how those uh, those interior backers do for SC. Yeah,
0: and that, that, that's the very reason why we all presumed he was moved to the weak side and uh, just less thinking involved in that position and, and Clancy just having a lot of trust in John Houston from a coordination and communication standpoint. Uh, I I think that was definitely the reason that happened. Let's let's close on the secondary, which we we kind of hit on a few minutes ago. That is maybe not as big of a question as it was previously. I mean, there's still questions there, but Elijah Griffin is emerging as a bona fide potential true number one corner. I I like this guy a lot. What I like is that so. I, <laughs> Nothing drives me crazier watching football, college, or NFL than cornerbacks who don't have any awareness and don't look back for the ball and don't turn their head and just beeline down the field and get too handsy and get penalties all the time. Elijah Griffin is both really athletic and able to stay with this man, but then has a, has a keen sense for what's coming, when, when the ball's coming his way, how he has to position himself to be able to make a play on it and that's the difference i've seen between him and the other guys right now. We've seen Isaac Taylor Stewart in position, in good coverage on the field and just not make the play, not react quick enough, not be in the right spot. And with Elijah Griffin, I mean, he was going up against uh Stanford's 6 foot 7 tight ends, Parkinson on that pivotal series when it was it was 14-3 and and he defended them twice cuz he had good positioning and he, and he knew what to yeah, expect. Yeah, it's always
1: funny when you're playing Stanford cuz They've been doing that for a decade straight. The red zone puts your at most athletic tight end at six seven, uh, like to to the boundary and and throw up a fade ball, so you know what's coming. But like you said, it's self awareness. It's it's knowing kind of the situation at hand. And he's been play- playing well. And I think the biggest thing is you can tell he's confident out there. I think it will be interesting to-, to follow. Like just because Stanford's a different test, right? I mean, it's it's the six seven tight ends. It's the big boys. It's it's that kind of thing. Rather than maybe some of the more Pac-12 offenses that'll that'll test you vertically, test you with speed, test you with quickness. So that'll be a, a, a good test for them uh, moving forward. But by and large, like, like we kind of touched on earlier, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the secondary as by far the biggest question mark, how are they going to do it? And now they've, they, they've really kind of fallen into place, I mean, um, with – uh, Isaac Taylor Stewart, Isaac Taylor Stewart on one side, and then both safeties locked in there, as well as Elijah Griffin. I think um, Greg Johnson, I mean, it was great to see him get that pick. And it, I thought it was really cool how he got beat on that same deep route, the, like uh, 12, 15-yard out route earlier in the game. You can see it. He gets his hips twisted around. Uh, Davis Mills punishes him with a, a, a strike to Davis Mills and then or, uh, to Colby Parkinson. And then they come back to it like two quarters later. Greg Johnson's sitting in his hip pocket. Davis throws it slightly behind the receiver. And then uh, Greg gets rewarded for being right there. And especially for a kid battling all offseason for that nickel spot. Um, I mean, awesome to just see it, see him get rewarded and uh, see that secondary get some momentum.
0: That, that's that's good perspective on, on Johnson adjusting to a mistake and, and correcting it later in the game. I, he's a guy that I'm still – and wait-and-see mode on. I think he's been up and down. It was definitely great for him to get that pick. I think it was great for his confidence. Uh, I'm not totally sold on him at that spot yet, but we'll see how it goes. W- what's exciting, though, is that th- there's so much intrigue and so many storylines as the season moves forward now, and, and most of them are, are with a tinge of optimism and hope. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like, can, can Keaton Slovis back this up and do – do the same for an encore what 's the season going to be? Can Elijah Griffin build on a strong start and really become a star there i mean it's you you want to not get too far ahead of things and it is only two games, but at least we 're talking about stuff that 's fun and that that 's exciting and that there's there's reason to think the season could actually be. Uh, pretty enjoyable
1: the rest of the way. without a doubt it's pe- better this way than the other way i think um that the, the the first six or seven games that was so daunting is not as daunting as it once as it once was i think you walk into this week right now i mean definitely expecting to beat byu and walking it out three and oh and then a utah team that's very very good but you get them at home on a friday night there's no reason to think you can't take care of business then we're we're blinking and we're in a great spot. So um, no, it's it's exciting. It's just fun to see. I mean, we just did an hour long podcast, and there's no like glaring holes. There's no glaring issues. There's no ah, uh, how are they going to answer this question or that question? There's depth at a lot of positions. Um, I mean, makes our job fun, makes uh, the fans root fun, and uh, hopefully this can continue. Yeah, I mean, we we didn't even have time to talk
0: about the running backs who were good again or or really get into the receivers. So, yeah, there's a lot to like. Uh, I'm just going to be on the record, though, just in case anyone's worried that I'm I'm going too far overboard. I I, I am uh, cognizant that it's only two games and that tougher tests await. And we don't know what the season's going to become yet. I'm just excited that there's at least reasons to think
1: it could go, go well.
0: Max, this was fun as always. I'm really enjoying these. I, I know our listeners are. It's great to have you on the podcast this year. Thanks, again. yeah. this was dope.
1: Uh, tune into the, the Thursday uh, Q and A session if you're uh, listening to this. Those are always fun. On the message boards, usually go about uh, 5 p.m. Pacific time. So check those out. answer any questions. Uh, and uh, yeah, man, I'll see you, See you later this week.